Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. And I am absolutely jacked up to bring you today's episode because we are going to talk about uh, one of the very reasons that Pheasants Forever came into existence back in 1982, and that is to create permanent public habitat. We have an exciting conversation lined up to talk about prairie chickens in public and public lands. Uh, joining us on this particular podcast, we have Brian Winter of the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, Rob Baden of the Minnesota DNR, and making his return to On the Wing podcast from episode number one is Aaron Sandquist, the uh, Minnesota State Coordinator for Pheasants Forever. So this is a, um, a story about the Cupido Wildlife Management Area. And to help us explain what the Cupido word means, we're going to start with an introduction of Brian Winter from the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society. Brian, thanks very much for joining the podcast today. Um, let's start off with what the heck does the word Cupido mean? All right, good morning. And, and Cupido, um, I probably have to back up just a little bit. Um, Cupido is part of what we call the scientific name of the greater prairie chicken. And the, the full genus species name of the greater prairie chicken is Timpanucus cupido. And what that means, everybody probably knows cupido is kind of a word for love, but Timpanucus cupido means drummer of love. And so what a great name for a bird, huh? You know, the drummer of love. And uh, so in some ways, we're going to be talking today about the love WMA, which is kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of interesting. <laughs> Aaron, why didn't we name this the drummer of love WMA? Because that, that is a name. That would have been something. I think uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I love it, Brian. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, um, the role you play with the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society. Uh, absolutely. So first, I should probably um, tell you that my my day job, my paying job, is I'm the program director for the stewardship program for the Nature Conservancy. And I serve as volunteer president for the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, a role that I've played for uh, in the neighborhood of uh, 20 some years now. It's uh, I've been told it's for life, but I'm, I'm not buying that. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society is a small organization in, in Minnesota that was started in 1973, actually. And it formed as a result of just extreme habitat loss that were that were occurring, you know, across Western Minnesota in the 70s. Uh, those of you that have been around long enough probably remember we had an agricultural secretary named Earl Butts, and it was sort of fence row to fence row farming. That was the the attitude, and um, and so our native grasslands came under some of the greatest pressure. 
um, in the 70s. And it concerned a lot of people that if uh, strong action wasn't taken quickly, that we would lose our native prairie. And with that, things like the greater prairie chicken and the marbled godwood and all these cool birds that were associated with these habitats would also disappear. And so that was kind of the trigger that formed the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society. And and frankly, I'll, I'll credit the the, the formation of the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society that back in the 70s, which is pr actually pre-Pheasants Forever, but mm. the, the, the actions that were taken at that time by the Nature Conservancy, the Minnesota DNR, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on land acquisition that formed the core of some of our best grassland native prairie complexes in the prairie chicken range, I think kept prairie chickens as a species that's on the landscape. And now uh, there wasn't enough done at that time, and, and everybody, including Pheasants Forever now, are, are working working real hard to try to expand these wildlife management areas and build out on them to, um, you know, try to ensure well into the future, hopefully forever, that greater prairie chickens are a part of this landscape. Um, so, you know, so that's kind of what the um, Minnesota Prairie Chicken, how the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society formed. And our mission is certainly to just raise public awareness of prairie chickens in their grassland habitats. And we feel like we've done that. We do that through a series of observation blinds that we put on booming grounds. And we should talk at some point probably about what a booming ground is and what goes on out there. Um, we get involved with land acquisition projects. In fact, in fact, that's our top priority right now. And that's what formed the partnership with Pheasants Forever because you guys are experts at that and, and we're a small little organization. It would be difficult for us to do these acquisitions on our own. Um, but we also have uh, uh, provided funding for research projects, including a winter ecology study where we really wanted to learn more about prairie chickens and how they were surviving in the winter, what we could do to improve our management to make their survivor through these harsh Minnesota winters more, li you know, more likely. Um, and uh, we maintain a an annual meeting, which unfortunately due to the COVID crisis was canceled every April, usually the third weekend of April. We move that meeting across the Minnesota prairie chicken range. We invite the local people and, and everybody that cares about prairie chickens. And we really celebrate this bird on the landscape. We have field trips, opportunity to get in blinds to watch this uh, amazing courtship that occurs on the booming grounds. And uh, we also have a website, prairiechickens.org, and a Facebook page to, again, help spread the news that prairie chickens are a really cool bird, and uh, we all should be working to keep them on the landscape. What's the, what's that town uh, up 35 in Minnesota with the prairie chicken statue the, off the, right off the exit? The, the prairie chicken capital of Minnesota, Rosse. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that statue was a very early Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society project with that community and uh, worked together to, to get that statue constructed and, uh, and put up. Uh, there's a... Uh, 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 a the person that actually built it, Art Fosse, was a, a, a member of, you know, the Rosse community. And uh, it actually wasn't too long ago, maybe five years ago, the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society had a work day and the, the plumage was getting a little faded and we uh, all got <laughs> together and, and uh, spruced it up with some new paint. So it's looking pretty sharp again. It still looks really it, quite nice. So it, if you're uh, traveling up 35, uh, either heading to the Twin Cities or heading to North Dakota in search of... Uh, maybe waterfall next fall. That is a, a wonderful place to stop and check out that statue. It's a, it is an absolutely beautiful statue in yep. the town of Rasse. Uh, how many, how many members of the Prairie Chicken Society do you have these days? Well, it, it varies as 
but um, I would say we've got a couple hundred, you know, several hundred members. So we're we're a small organization for sure, and we don't have any paid staff or anything like that. We're we're a lot like a local rod and gun or a fishing game club in many many respects, but but focused on prairie chickens. You know, I I'm I am proud to be a dues paying member. I have awesome. the uh, I have the blaze orange hat with the. Uh, the chick. I, I actually intended to wear that for this podcast, but I uh, I forgot. Uh, but I have the one with the that blaze orange hat with the uh, prairie chicken in full uh, boom. I guess. Or yeah. What would be the right term? Well, we have several versions. One of our hats has booming is our business, yeah. and and boom booming is the term that is often referred to when prairie chickens gather on what are called booming grounds. And um, I could go into that for just a couple minutes if, if you yeah. want to and talk about what a booming ground actually is. And, and a booming ground is a, is a place on the landscape. It's usually an area with really short cover. So an area like a ridge top where the cattle had grazed it down really short or an area that might have been hayed off. Or oftentimes it's our cultivated fields adjacent to these large grassland complexes where booming grounds form. And the reason for that is the male prairie chickens in the area gather on that booming ground and they want to be seen by the females. And so they're looking for short vegetation structures so they're obvious, so they're visible. And they gather there and display and the in the process of forming a booming ground, each individual male defends a territory. Like most wildlife species have a territory. And, and for prairie chickens, that territory is a very small piece of real estate within the booming ground that they fight off other males and they defend that piece of territory. So think like a jigsaw puzzle. They're just these odd shaped little pieces that each male has been able to eke out. And so when females come to visit that booming ground, they then wander through that booming ground, looking the males over. It's a female's mm. world. They get to choose and they look <laughs> it all over and decide which male they actually would prefer to mate with. And so the bigger area you can defend on the booming ground, the better chance that a female may stop in your area and decide to mate with you. What's interesting is the bigger, more dominant, older, more mature cocks or male prairie chickens are in the center of that booming ground. They have the smallest territory, but they do some research is showing upwards of 80% of the breeding. So, so those females kind of are looking for survivors. They can tell the bigger, more mature males, not the juveniles that are sitting on the edge with pretty big territories because nobody's fighting them on the outside. But, mm -hmm. but um, you know, they're, they're learning the ropes to, you know, and learning how to fight and become more competitive to, to get to, you know, to eventually get to the middle of that booming ground if they survive another season. I do find it fascinating, particularly in the grouse species. You know, you got rough grouse in their drumming logs for display. You got sharp tails in their dancing grounds, which are very comparable to the booming grounds with chickens. Yep. And it's similar with um, sage grouse and their leks. Yeah. You know, I, I guess as I'll transition to bring Aaron into the conversation as a resident uh, pheasant expert. Um, do pheasants have a similar displaying um, tradition or <laughs> biological purpose that um, that the grouse species do? Well, yes, and welcome everybody. Um, you know, for anybody that's turkey hunted in the spring, um, especially uh, our season opens here next week in Minnesota. 
um, you will notice that the male pheasants are, are pretty brazen, or at least more brazen than they would be in the fall uh, when they're they're huntable. And so, yeah, they, they like to be in the open and like to show off and, and uh, like to make some noise to uh, draw in those females. Uh, not necessarily collectively as males, but they have larger territories and, and they are certainly uh, putting on a show for the ladies in the springtime. It pretty universal in the gallinaceous bird world, right? Um, Aaron, uh, so Aaron, you're a biologist. Uh, for folks that didn't hear episode number one a year and a half ago, give give me a short overview of what uh, your role is with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Yeah, um, well, I, I have the privilege of having worked for Pheasants Forever for about 18 years, starting back in 2002. Uh, with the organization pretty much right out of college. And so um, I have a, a tremendous passion, like a lot of the folks on the phone here today, um, for protecting wildlife habitat that is publicly accessible. And And I certainly live in the right state for that here in Minnesota. Uh, there's a lot of support and interest for doing that in Minnesota. And uh, that's what I get to wake up and do pretty much every day as state coordinator here with a lot of partners and, and a lot of good folks. And I, I grew up on the banks of the Crow River in uh, Delano, Minnesota, in eastern Wright County. And uh, now I reside in South Haven, a small town in very western Wright County. So I haven't ever made it out of the county, but uh, I'm here and, and been here since 2005. And with my wife, Melissa, and daughters, Jaden and Ava, who are avid fisher and hunter women. And you are um, our point person for all projects related to Minnesota's legacy amendment in the Outdoor Heritage Fund. Uh, give us just a short overview of what that particular amendment has meant to the state of Minnesota over the course of, uh, well, since 2008, when it got voted into uh, existence by Minnesota's um, um, residents. Sure. Well, and, and so I've been around long enough to have done a lot of work with Pheasants Forever and, and other groups and folks prior to the amendment. So, you know, I think Ron Shera probably said it the best that uh, the legacy amendment is the greatest gift Minnesotans have ever given themselves. And, you know, the amount of acceleration and additional work that we are doing in the state for wildlife habitat, water quality, parks and trails, and uh, a few other pots has been just tremendous since 2008 when, when Minnesota voters uh, decided to tax themselves overwhelmingly to dedicate uh, constitutionally some money for wildlife habitat in the state. So it's been phenomenal, uh, the amount of work we can achieve together with the Outdoor Heritage Fund. Yeah. Yeah. I'm particularly, you know, I, as a um, employee of Pheasants Forever, but more importantly, as a resident of Minnesota, when you drive around the countryside, uh, whether it's hunting or just exploring and you see that legacy amendment sign on pieces of public property, uh, I am super proud to, to be a uh, resident of Minnesota these days. You know, the, the, the kind of the onus it, the, the state's residents took upon themselves to protect our, our last great wild places through the legacy amendment is is something incredibly special. Uh, Absolutely. I'll go ahead, Bob. No, I was going to move to introducing uh, Rob, but finish out your thought. 
Well, I was just going to kind of circle back to what Brian had said about, you know, starting those complexes back in the 70s and, and you know, that helping to save the chickens uh, maybe in part uh, over time. With Because of the, the legacy amendment, you know, we're going back to some of those complexes that were initiated or started a long ago and we're adding grass, we're adding wetlands um, to these complexes, making them stronger, making them more resilient. We're holding water on the landscape, which is solving a lot of other problems that Minnesotans care about uh, at the same time. So it, it's really something that whether you're a pheasant hunter or access public land, um, this legacy amendment is really doing good things for the citizens of Minnesota as a whole. Right on. Well, that, that's it. that is a perfect transition to Rob, because Rob's going to tell us um, after he introduces himself a little bit about the how special this property is and the fact that it does that the, the desire to put this property into the public's hands does date back to the 1970s but before we get there from the minnesota dnr wait let me do this better my my minnesota minneapolis metrodome introduction from the minnesota department of natural resources <laughs> <laughs> no smoking at the m -m 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 Metrodome. Uh, Rob Baden joining us, uh, rounding out our, our our conversation this morning. Rob, welcome to On the Wing Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, I'm the. I have the privilege of being the local area wildlife manager that gets to uh, manage tracts of land like uh, Cupid OWMA that Pheasant Forever and the Mary Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society uh, helped uh, make possible. Um, I've, uh, I manage all in Norman, Monoman County, and Western Becker County up here in Northwest Minnesota. I guess short background, maybe I I grew up uh, south of Twin Cities in Shakopee and. You know, knew knew from a young age that I always wanted to work with wildlife and be a be a wildlife guy, and um, spent a bunch of time down in Southwest Minnesota, kind of the pheasant capital there. I spent uh, ten years in Wyndham doing a lot of land acquisition and as an assistant wildlife manager down there, and came up here to God's country here in the Northwest here uh, <laughs> back in two thousand four. Um, very privileged to uh, take over, kind of a. A beautiful uh, country, uh, you know, beautiful landscape up here where you pretty much have almost every species in Minnesota that uh, calls home you can find within, you know, a short drive of Detroit Lakes. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful country. And now it's um, going to be protected just a bit um, uh, longer. In other words, forever through uh, through the brand new Cupido Wildlife Management Area Addition. Um, it's 955 acre addition, um, WMA that this, this particular podcast is going to be about. And as, as we kind of formulated an outline together for this conversation, um, Rob, you sent me a note that, you know, it's pretty important to talk about how critical this piece of property is and the history of the property being identified as a as a tract that the DNR wanted to protect forever, and and that fact that that dates back to the 1970s. Tell us about that. Yeah, kind of how Brian laid it out. I mean, these are 
these core areas, um, you know, were developed back in the back in the 70s. Uh, we identified tracts of land that were very high priority, um, largely tied to native prairie, prairie chickens on them, and you know, remnant prairie that's never seen the plow. Um, we went after this tract originally, I think, in 72. Um, we're not able to acquire it. It's actually tract one of the project map. Um, we were able to acquire tract two, just, you know, that's adjacent to it. And then since that time, we've kind of had our eyes on it. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's been part of it's been, um, you know, the uplands have been converted to, to tillable, but there's still almost 300 acres of remnant prairie still left on this tract. You know, the best of the best, just gorgeous <laughs> native prairie. And you talked about um, this being a tract one and that tract two is already now or it has been protected permanently. What, tell us about kind of the overall complex here, because, you know, the, what, what we've announced here in the last month is that the you know, 955 acre addition, but that's not the full uh, picture of what this area looks like, is it? No, it's not. Um, you know, this is this is smack dab in the Minnesota Prairie Plan. This is considered a core area, so it's the best of the best that we have left, and where we want to um, increase land. You know, land going forward protection. You know, private and and public. Um, it, and this started probably, you know, as part of the Prairie Plan and, and the Outdoor Heritage back in two thousand oh, been two thousand fourteen. There was about. 4,000 acres in this complex, Neal, Syrie, Twin Valley, and Cupido WMA. It's kind of a chunk right along Highway 32 there of, of the old Beach Ridge where there was a lot of native prairie left and a lot of CRP. Um, in 2014, you know, as farm prices increased, we lost a lot of CRP in that country. Um, Norman County alone lost 14,000 acres of CRP in 2014. One year, got converted. And a lot of this land on the, in that area is, is beach ridge. It's fairly poor egg land. And, um, you know, as the, that, that, that crop boom kind of ran its course, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, landowners there were interested in getting it back into, you know, production or, uh, uh into protection. It's just, it's not real conducive to, to farming, blow sand. And so DNR started in 2014. We actually acquired uh, three tracks, um, a Twin Valley track, 320 acres, Syrie, 160 acres. And um, we uh, transferred, Nature Conservancy transferred 160 acres to us in 2014, right in that complex also. So we we're kind of putting the pieces together, trying to make mm. this big habitat block. And another, this acquisition we tried in 2014, we made an offer, um, uh, Aaron with Pheasants Forever, he made an offer um, and the landowner turned us down, which he's done since the 70s. I think this has been gone after three different times by um, TNC, DNR and Pheasants Forever, but we just keep trying, you know, that's, that's the name of the game, perseverance. And um, it just so happened that a year and a half, year, a little over a year ago, landowner kind of reached back out to us and um hmm. he had his eye on some you know prime farm ground in the in the valley and uh we we made an offer and you know he graciously accepted so 900 almost a thousand acres so this block is you know over five thousand you know acres here and and i bet a thousand almost two thousand of that has happened in the last five years hmm. so if i understand correctly the landowner 
um, saw an opportunity to own some better ground for his farming operation and sort of traded in or sold this property, <laughs> the Cupido, which became a um, critical habitat and then found something that was a better fit for, for agriculture. Is that accurate? Exactly. You know, it's, it's kind of farm, farm the best and, you know, protect the rest is kind of our model too. And, you know, as the Minnesota DNR, I mean, we, we don't want to be out there, you know, buying, you know, good high quality farm ground. We're looking for the stuff that, you know, is probably shouldn't have never been farmed in the first place. And it makes sense. It's kind of like, you know, upgrading your yard. You want to make something better. And if, you know, we can, he could trade some marginal crop ground for some better stuff in the Valley. It, it just, the pieces came together. Yeah. 50 years of, 50 years of trial and error. And we finally got her done. Well, and the fact that um, there, I think you said 300 some acres has uh, remained virgin prairie. That sort of speaks to the fact that it wasn't very good farm ground to begin with, correct? Correct. And it's been in CRP over the years also, you know, the vast majority of the tillable. So it's, it's, it's not good crop ground up on the ridge there. So the landowner comes back to this group who has been negotiating or talking to him about um, opportunity to protect this forever as habitat comes back about a year and a half ago. And How's that? So landowner says, I'm interested now. I've got my eyes on something better down in the valley that's going to be better to farm. Um, but it doesn't, you know, I, I think about the state. I think about Pheasants Forever. I think about any nonprofit. It's not like we're sitting on a um, savings account of cash. Aaron, what what's when the landowner comes back to us and says, I'd like to do this. How's the process start for figuring out what the what the first move is to make it happen? Yeah, um, well, it, it's a little different for for every project, um, but you know, I kind of break it down into two steps, and and it's really about finding that kind of base funding uh, to start with. You know, something that can get us. Um, to get an appraisal, um, to get us a survey, to, to make an offer to a landowner uh, based on what we are guessing this property might appraise for uh, to start with. And so uh, before I do, before I kind of walk through that process, I just want to recognize someone uh, named John Vaz. Uh, John is, is very active with the Prairie Chicken Society and, and with this partnership with Outdoor Heritage Fund um, that the Prairie Chickens and Pheasants Forever have, John's really the pointy end of the spear as it relates to on the ground in that area, working with landowners. And, and one of the, the things here, I found an email uh, from John Vaz on July 30th in 2015. And and just wanted to read uh, one sentence here that John wrote to us. And I walked the property with Joe, his wife, and his 10-year-old son. And they all agreed that wildlife and not farming was the best option for this property. We talked about chickens for at least two hours. And so that just kind of describes John. I mean, incredibly passionate about the work we're doing, protecting land and certainly chickens. So I just want to give him a shout out for all the work he does here on this project and all of our partnership projects. And Joe would be the uh, the landowner, the farmer, I, I assume? Correct. Correct. Uh, on, the, on the Cupido. Yep. Joe was the former landowner. Okay. So... Um, you know, and that, and that now, so now going back to, you know, this base funding that we need to kind of secure. So 
Prairie Chicken Society, Pheasants Forever, DNR, we all talk about the priorities. Uh, as Rob talked about, this property has been number one on the list for a long time. So um, it was, yep, this, this project is important. We got an, the willing seller component. How do we how do we get that base funding? And, and certainly that's where Outdoor Heritage Fund has become critical since its inception of, of providing that kind of base funding to get us going and, and get us in the in the door, so to speak, to start these big projects. And, you know, this is 955 acres. So we're talking about, you know, well over $2 million by the time you incorporate all of the costs that are gonna come along with this property, not only fee title, but different costs and restorations and taxes and things like that. So um, that's really where it starts is making sure we have that kind of nest egg to get going. Uh, we get an appraisal. We um, hire independent certified appraisers and make an offer to the landowner. If we get that offer, then we kind of go to that phase two of how do we refine the budget and um, bring in all the extra partners that we need to, to make the, the funding package whole. Hmm. And I'll circle back just for a moment because we, when we announced this on the Pheasants Forever Facebook page, the one of the first comments from from the Facebook following was, Boy, that's awfully far north for pheasants. Uh, you know, there, there is a question about uh, there, there being pheasants there. So I want to I want to go to um, uh, Brian, who who lives up in that neck of the woods. And you know, before we hit the record button, you know, we talked about some of the wildlife on this property and how magical this really is for a place in 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 the state and really in the world. Tell us a little bit about all the different species that live on this piece of property. And then are there pheasants there, Brian? Nope. No pheasants up there. (laughs) 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 Obviously I'm kidding you, but there are pheasants and uh, you know, with the mild winters we've really had for quite some time, the range of pheasants have been expanding basically Mm -hmm. northward. And they used to talk about, you know, like I-94 or even US-10 as sort of the corridor. And even today, if you go on like the DNR's website and look at the pheasant range in Minnesota, it kind of drops off on those at those points. But um, they clearly have expanded and uh, there you would call it huntable populations can be found now much further north than I've been working in this landscape for 35 years. And when I came up here, seeing a pheasant was very uncommon. And particularly if you went north, you just didn't see a pheasant. But that's all changed quite a bit. And um, and, and that's, you know, for those of us that do like to hunt pheasants, that's a, that's a good thing. Mm. And I was kind of living on the north edge of the range. And now I'm kind of in the range where I live, which is not a bad thing if you like to, you know, get out with your dogs and go chase roosters in the fall, which right. I do. But... Um, so this, you know, this property is a typical sort of native prairie, you know, kind of grassland. And so it has, you know, the 300 some acres of it is. And it's so it has a wonderful suite of biodiversity that some of your listeners probably aren't going to care about, but they maybe should. And that that diversity is tied up in the plant species that are out there, the invertebrate species, the pollinators. And um, there's probably, it hasn't been inventoried, or at least I haven't seen it, but I would predict that on, the, on this property, there's over 300 species of plants and an unknown number of uh, insects, basically. Hmm. 
And so what people, and by when I say plants, it's a wide diversity of, of plants. It's grasses and it's flowers, lots of flowers. That's one of the things that makes a high quality native prairie special. Well, flowers attract insects and pollinators. Well, what do little pheasants or little prairie chickens need to eat? Mm -hmm. They only can live if they're getting invertebrates. They have mm. to have that stuff to survive. And so, so I think these diverse native prairie parcels provide you know, really high quality brood habitat, a place that, um, you know, the, the chicks essentially can uh, find the diversity they need in their diet to, to survive into fledglings and, and adults. Um, so, so I'll start there, but, but from, a, from a hunting standpoint, certainly you would find a few pheasants there. Minnesota has a limited uh, prairie chicken season and we've obviously got prairie chickens on that track. White-tailed deer are pretty common. Um, there's, uh, enough interbeach wetlands, I'll call them and, and other things where you can jump shoot a few ducks and things on, on that property. Um, woodcock, which is another migratory species are, can be found there in some of the red osier dogwood and, and, uh, aspen willow, you know, wetland areas that are on the property. So it has a lot of, um, diversity, if you will, in terms of opportunity for, for bird watchers, for botanists, people that like mm. to look at plants and flowers and and for you know hunters alike there's just a lot of opportunity on a piece of property like this and and um you know i'll just add to the you know in terms of the uniqueness of this tract a few uh, of my own uh, thoughts it, it has been a work in progress for decades trying to you know get to the point where we had a willing seller and it's great that the you know the, you know, the stars aligned and suddenly we had a seller that was willing and through all them years of contact by different conservation organizations, he knew we were an interested buyer. And it's great that he came back in this case to John Vaughs that Aaron, you know, gave a shout out to and said, you know, I think I might be ready to sell now. And, uh, you know, the, the rest is kind of history. But mm -hmm. but I want to highlight how important that tract is a little bit myself, which is I you know, as I think, I know the prairie chicken range really well. It's my work area. Um, and I would say this is probably one of the top five projects in the prairie chicken range from a standpoint hmm. of the size of the holding, the amount of native prairie that's a portion of that, you know, almost a thousand acres, its location being adjacent to this large wildlife management, over 5,000 acre complex that Rob Baden talked about. And the fact that it's really in the core of the prairie chicken range, you can go about an hour's north and an hour south of this property and you'll stay within the prairie chicken range in Minnesota. But if you get much further than that, you there's no more prairie chickens. There's not enough of the right type of grassland habitat that we don't have prairie chicken populations outside of that range. And this property sits kind of right in the middle. And so those would be some of the, you know, from my own personal perspective, why this was just such a critical piece of habitat to, to work together on and to get protection of. You know, when, when um, I started writing about this for, in regards to the press release and a blog, and uh, I was talking with a uh, Joe Dugan, who's kind of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon in the conservation world. Every, everybody knows Joe Dugan. And, uh, and of course, Joe knows everybody. And, and, and a small world story, you know, Joe's like, yeah, I hunted that area 30 years ago for moose. And yep. it just startled me to kind of talk about diversity, which you just got it done explaining, you know, 
this was part of Minnesota's uh, moose range at one time. Now, the, the moose numbers have declined dramatically for a whole host of reasons. But, you know, here's a property that at one point in time had a pretty healthy moose population on it, too. Yep, ab- uh, absolutely. And it, it is it's sad that, you know, for a variety of reasons, the moose population across the state of Minnesota is doing so poorly. But it, it crashed here in northwest Minnesota probably 15, 20 years ago. But when I first was a young conservationist and first moved up here to, you know, uh, begin my career here in northwest Minnesota, moose were common. And they and I, I the Nature Conservancy has a tract of land that's a part of this complex. So I was up there regularly doing land management on that site. And I would say most of the time when I would go up there in the late 80s and early 90s, I would see moose and not just one moose, multiple moose up there. And um, but, uh, you know, things changed and obviously moose disappeared. But it is a a small world that that's uh, where Joe got his lifetime license and actually went out and and had the opportunity to hunt hunt, uh, hunt Minnesota moose before the season you know, closed, which, you know, it's obviously been closed, I think, for about five years now across right. the state, including the core range for moose in the state, which is the northeast sort of corner. So, so uh, I didn't so, get the moose because they've disappeared. <laughs> and so I might be showing my, my naiveness with this next question, but you brought up, um, I think, the, the phrase beach habitat or beach. You've mentioned beach a couple times, and in my mind, I know this is uh, in the area of ancient Lake Agassiz. So I'm wondering if that, when you're using the phrase beach, if you're connecting to to Lake yes. Agassiz. Okay, so yeah, explain me, that for us. Let a me explain bit. it a little bit. And so, so the reason you know Rob talked earlier about the fact that this was low quality farmland and why the landowner Joe decided he wanted to you know trade in basically is what we call the Beach Ridges landscape are really the former shorelines, the former beaches of that massive glacial lake called Glacial Lake Agassiz. And so when that lake was in existence about 10,000 years ago, the, the Red River Valley is known for its high quality soils and, and people that have been there know how flat that is. Well, that's because you're in the bottom of a lake, a drained mm-hmm. lake. And so the soils there, the topsoil is, I don't even know how deep it is. And it's very flat, high, you know, as long as you can get the drainage down there, it's really super good farmland. Whereas the beach ridges, you wind up with a lot of washed sort of soils and, and material. That's where the the aggregate material, the gravel comes from that sort of drives the development that's occurring in communities like Fargo Moorhead and mm-hmm. Grand Forks, East Grand Forks. And it's because of the, the former shoreline and the way the glacier brought the material in and then it got washed and deposited through that glacial, you know, process, if you will. These um, um, soils are quite sandy, quite gravelly. And it's, it may sound like a contradiction, but they're both extremely wet and extremely droughty. And what I mean by that is they're very poorly drained because um, I might have mentioned the term interbeach zone. And so what you have are zones between beach ridges, between shorelines, where when the lake would hold at a certain level, the lake wasn't static as ice block dams. The, the lake eventually drained out the Minnesota River, which everybody's pretty familiar with. It's called Glacial River Warren at the time from a, a glacial, glacial standpoint. But so ice would block that and the lake would would um, 
sit at much different levels. So it's not just one shoreline or one beach. It's multiple major shorelines or beaches that make up that beach ridges landscape. Between those shorelines are kind of trapped lower wetland zones that don't drain very well. And so in the spring, it's difficult land to get into and makes it cold and wet soil. But then in the summer, because of the composition of the soils that are in there, they can tend to dry out and become pretty droughty. And so when we talk about it as being really poor farmland, it just absolutely is. It is the type of land where you can talk to a number of different landowners that regret plowing it up. Very mm -hmm. poor farmland, wish they wouldn't have. And of course, we wish that it wouldn't have either, because if it was all native prairie, it'd be much better than what we can create today through our, our restoration or reconstructions of those habitats. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I, I want before I get back to Aaron in the funding. I, this I, I, every time I start talking about this particular project, I'm fascinated by just how interesting and how diverse the wildlife is. But I do get questions about um, folks want to know about the prairie chicken hunting opportunities in Minnesota because there's a lot of a lot of people that I don't think knew that prairie chickens, uh, A, not only existed still in Minnesota, but B, that there was a hunting uh, opportunity in the state of Minnesota. So maybe, uh, Rob, you can tell us a little bit about prairie chicken hunting opportunities in the state, where, where they are and how folks um, can take advantage of them. Yeah, sure, Bob. Um, this, this new Cupido tract is kind of front and center, I would say, from that Rossay complex north up to Mentor, that's your core prairie chicken range. And the state of Minnesota has um, about 12 different blocks in there, kind of like the deer permit area where we um, landowners have to, or hunters have to apply for a permit. And then we, you know, limit the, limit the harvest. It's a, it's a two per day limit. And, uh, you know, hunters have the opportunity to hunt big tracts of public land largely to chase those prairie chickens. Hmm. Um, in, in that core Norman, Norman, Southern Norman County area, there's only probably 15 licenses given, you know, for two prairie chickens each. So it's a pretty, um, you know, small percentage of the population that, that gets to hunt that on a yearly basis. But I was fortunate last year to actually harvest my first ever prairie chickens with, um, just to the north of here up by Gary um, on, on a prairie chicken and pheasants forever track of land that we acquired here a few years ago. So I would encourage any hunter who's who has that bucket list idea for prairie chickens that Minnesota is a good place to go. We have pretty high success rates seasons a couple weeks long late september into early october and you have a very good chance of harvesting uh you know a greater prairie chicken in minnesota uh is it reserved for residents only is it that is. right okay and yeah you're um go ahead brian well, I just wanted to, um, I don't want to leave the hunting thing just yet, so go ahead and finish. But I, I wanted to talk about, I do some survey work right up on that Norman Clay County line for, for prairie chickens and wanted to talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah, so, so I was just going to make one final point in terms of the hunting. I believe that, so you got prairie chickens are pretty, um, the opportunities in the United States to hunt prairie chickens are relatively narrow. I know you can, you can hunt them in South Dakota you can hunt them in uh, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, by lottery in Minnesota. 
And I, I don't know of a whole heck of a lot of other states that you can chase greater prairie chickens, particularly you know, east of Minnesota. I, I would have to imagine Minnesota is the furthest east you can hunt prairie chickens. I don't know if you guys know any states that I'm missing. There is a small population in Wisconsin, and if, if I'm correct, hunted. Brian, correct, but not hunted. But not, but not hunted, correct. And there's a small oh. population in Illinois and and even Missouri, but none of those populations, to my knowledge, are hunted, and they're really quite small populations. And in fact, Minnesota birds have been translocated, where some of our birds have been trapped and moved to those areas, in many cases, hmm help enrich the genetic diversity of those populations because they their numbers got so low there was concern that they might be you know almost in inbreeding too much and hmm. and, and, a, and part of the issue that um, the population wasn't doing well and so minnesota's bird prairie chickens have definitely been translocated to north dakota and wisconsin and um, illinois hmm. and just to name a few places yeah, I knew about the population, the non-huntable populations in Missouri and Illinois. I, w- I know that Wisconsin has Sharpies, but I didn't know that Wisconsin has prairie chickens. What part of the state in Wisconsin has chickens? Well, the, the primary uh, management area that they refer to it as is Crex Meadows. Um, okay. It's kind of a, a complex that I would describe uh, – what east central i suppose is a way to describe where that's at so really not too far east of the the twin cities area basically right Right. yeah i'm real familiar with the uh, namakagan barrens area of northwestern wisconsin kind of the sand barrens where they have um occasional lottery hunting for for sharp tails i i didn't know about the chickens in crex meadows that's that's really fascinating. I'll have to do some research on that. Um, right. All right. And it's interesting well, that you bring up that sharp tail area because once again, Minnesota has been uh, through a project for several years, contributed sharp tails to that population trying huh. to, um, so they were trapping sharp tails in the Minnesota sharp tail range and moving birds to that. I, I won't try to pronounce that area, but that forest <laughs> area that you're yeah. familiar with. Yeah. So. The Namakagan Barrens. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And for, perspe- for perspective here, uh, uh, Bob, you know, Minnesota has a very conservative prairie chicken season. I mean, we shoot about 100 birds on average a year. So it's a pretty small, small conservative, uh, you know, percentage of the population. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and hunters wise, it's it's not a long draw, you know, a couple years and you would have a tag to, you know, be able to go and harvest prairie chickens. Yeah. And we should really celebrate that. I mean, that season started again in 2003, I believe, is the first year we had a prairie chicken season again in Minnesota. But it had closed in the 1940s. And so, you know, 60, 60 years had passed without Minnesota sportsmen having the opportunity to go out and get what really is a trophy and unique bird. It's a bird settlers survived on, you know, it was a, it was a part of their staple in the very early days of, of Minnesota. and and it speaks again to the importance of conservation projects like this so that we can create a habitat base, preserve a habitat base where people can continue to enjoy these birds for all the different reasons that people might like a bird like prairie chickens, whether it's to watch it on the booming ground or to go out with their favorite hunting dog and, and harvest one for the table. So, And it's somewhat counterintuitive, right, to the, to the public at large, the fact that um, hunters – the ability to hunt a bird actually generates 
a love and a, a deeper love and interest in the bird to protect the habitat, which is kind of the whole point of this particular episode of, uh, of our podcast. You know, it's, it's the hunting community in large part that is rallied around uh, this property, the Cupido property, uh, because of their love of, of prairie chickens and chasing pheasants and, and sharp tails and seeing the need to protect these last remaining great grasslands, particularly the, um, the, the native virgin prairies that exist in Northwest Minnesota. But, but it, it plays out and it has played out since the history of North America. Exactly. And just a, a point that I wanted to try to make, Rob had mentioned just in one year, the number of acres of CRP that disappeared from Norman County. And I mentioned just a little bit earlier that I wanted to talk about the survey work. I, I do the survey for prairie chickens in the northern part of Clay County, which butts up against Norman County. And in the peak acre days of CRP, when we had lots of uh, land, private landowners were enrolling that poor quality farmland we talked about into the Conservation Reserve Program, it was impressive the number of prairie chickens up there. I used to describe it in the spring morning, an April morning, when I'd go up there to listen for and find prairie chickens on a booming ground, that it just felt like the whole area was vibrating. There were so many mm. booming grounds and so many chickens because there were literally tens of thousands of acres of new habitat in the form of conservation reserve program acres. Well, farm economy changed and some of that poor quality farmland seems a little more appealing to try to farm when corn or soybeans have a higher, you know, value per bushel. And a lot of that got converted. And so it, it again speaks to how important these permanent public land acquisitions are to keep populations resident bird pot, because that's something we, you know, pheasants are a resident bird. Prairie chickens are a resident bird, but at these landscapes, we don't have a lot of resident birds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's meadowlarks and bobolinks, and there's just such a diversity of bird species, spring, summer, and fall, but they get the heck out of here when the first snowflakes start to fly. And But, the, so, but these permanent habitat bases are critical to all of these grassland birds that require it. And I thought I would just read a couple of very short quotes here to speak to the, based on the survey and for a while what we were seeing for birds up there if we could have just kept building that habitat base um, this is from the booming from the mists of nowhere a book that, that greg hoke uh, put together a few years ago and he did a ton of going through the historical literature and I'll read three quick small quotes here that give you a feel for how common prairie chickens were at one time within um, within the region. Um, the first one is, the country hereabouts is full of them. Pesky things are eating the farmers <laughs> out of house and home. That's from 1940. Um, another one, most of the ears are nothing but bare cobs. Them cussed prairie chickens have picked all the corn off. 1925. Hmm. This is kind of my favorite one, and it's the roar that followed my shot occasioned by the beating of innumerable wings was astonishing. So large were these flocks that came together at times in late autumn and early winter that their sudden and simultaneous rising would make the earth tremble beneath the shooter's feet from <laughs> great chicken shooting in 1883. And so sometimes you have to look back at what once was to understand why it's so important or what you're doing today to try to get there if you, if you can. And obviously yeah. that's unrealistic, but it's 
but we need to at least preserve enough of that habitat base so that at times it still feels like what say our early settlers were able to experience those are those are fabulous fabulous quotes thanks for for bringing those to the the podcast and and we talked a little bit about hunting but for folks the hunting opportunity is relatively limited but uh any folks that care about upland birds i'll challenge you to go experience whether it's sharp tails dancing on a lek or prairie chickens dancing on uh, or booming on a booming ground. Uh, it is a life altering experience. Not only do you have to wake up at probably three 30 in the morning to get there, <laughs> but, but it just, well, Brian, tell it, convince our listeners that it's something they gotta do before they pass. And I know this year with the, uh, the stay-at-home orders and the quarantines, the opportunities are are a little bit off the table. But next spring, uh, people have to put this on their calendar. Yeah, let me. I will talk to talk about that for just a moment. Then, and it is a it is one of those bucket list experiences. You just ha- you have to do it. And um, I've been uh, managing two observation blinds on a booming ground here at Bluestem for over thirty years, and I've never had anybody that complained about getting up at four in the morning after they got out of the blind. They complain before they go, but <laughs> <laughs> but once they get in that blind and wait for that experience to start, and then once they've experienced and get out it's all smiles and all that was amazing is what you hear and then they want to come back the next year and bring a friend and and uh, and that type of thing but what you'll experience when you sit in a blind is super up close and personal um experience with this bird they're they're extremely tolerant of of a blind if you're in the blind they can't see you and they don't care. And so here on the Nature Conservancy's Bluestem Prairie, we get those blinds out early in the season and then we take reservations and we require people to get in really early in the dark so that they don't scare the birds. And then they have to sit there till the birds kind of finish their display. And so the birds will come within five feet of the blind doing their display. They will land on top of the blind doing their display. And so what does their display look like? Well, they're super, the males are super colorful and animated birds. They have what are called pinnae. Most people think of them as rabbit ears. They're two really long feathers that they'll erect over the top of their head. They'll drop their wings. They stomp their feet. And then they strut around with these what looks like two oranges on the side of their neck that they inflate that are orange and sort of scarlet colored on the top edge. And then make all these crazy sounds, the the hooping and the cackling and the 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 booming sound that from where they get the booming ground gets their name, which is a sound similar if you took your empty beer bottle or pop bottle and you kind of blow across the top and you get that kind of sound, they mix that in with all these other calls. And then they're fighting, and it looks like fights to the death at times. They've got mm. their beak out. Their main weapon is their beak, and they're trying to grab the pinnae and break those rabbit ears off. It. They're trying to break wing feathers. So the display of their competitor, their other male, looks a bit off. And they really get into some 
knockdown drag out fights, which are impressive to watch. And uh, we've got, fo- you know, we have a lot of photographers that come into the blinds. We've got photos of them hanging on to the leg of another male as they fall back <laughs> to the ground. And, and uh, last year we had a, a male prairie chicken on this booming ground that was limping. He literally had a broken leg. And so you go, okay, how did that happen? Did he, did, did he twist just wrong when it was in the beak of another male or did he just escape the jaws of a coyote or a red fox i mean we don't know what happened but it wouldn't surprise me when you watch the the battle royale that occurs between two male prairie chickens that he could have been injured from another male trying to make him less of a competitor but um it really is and it isn't i've been lucky enough to sit in the blind to watch sharp tails and sage grouse and prairie chickens and they're all special they're all unique and if you like upland bird hunting you got to do more than just the fall piece of that you need to get out in the spring and sit in a blind and across the great plains there are opportunities to do that i i could not agree with you more it is unbelievable it, it, it sort of completes the whole process of being a hunter to see their the reproductive display and the uh, the diversity of moves dance moves yeah uh Come, uh, kind of paired with the diversity of sounds, like they're they're a full blown rock band orchestra. <laughs> like some of the sounds they make are electric, and it is yeah. it uh, like honest to goodness, it is life changing to watch them. Yep, I couldn't agree more. That's uh, I never get sick of it. I've been doing this for 35 years and uh, I still go on the blind occasionally with the media and, and folks. And I still look forward to it, to be out there in the morning, waiting for them birds to show up. And that, that's one of the coolest parts of it. When you're in there in the dark, which is what we want people to do, you're sitting there and you're hearing, you know, sounds of the night, basically. And then all of a sudden these birds can tend to they they roost to spend the night nearby and so a lot of times they don't fly in they actually walk in and so if you're looking real close you might see these shadows kind of moving into their position we talked earlier about the little territories mm. and then all of a sudden you might hear just one kind of and then all of a sudden they all just like somebody turned a switch on and they all take off and start booming and and the the place comes to life in the in the pre-dawn darkness and it's a it's a pretty incredible experience spiritual no doubt and and so we got to protect this place we got to make this place uh prairie chicken habitat habitat forever and it's going to take two million dollars we're all in aaron how are we going to go get two million dollars let's get back to to how we made this happen as a group of partners to go get this money to protect and permanently preserve this an unbelievable property for prairie chickens, for pheasants, for woodcock, for waterfall, for insects. Uh, this this was a property that needed to be on the landscape for Minnesotans forever. Yeah, and you know the the easy answer, the one word is partnerships. And you know there isn't much work, uh, certainly when it comes to acquisitions that that happens alone. I mean you need partnerships you need a lot of partners to to do work on this kind of scale and certainly with a project of this size um that we needed a lot of folks and and uh, for those that have seen the press releases and and uh the the media 
there's a ton of folks that stepped up and and helped you know all the way from northern minnesota to southern minnesota and uh, from our pheasant fest efforts that i think you'll probably be talking about uh there's just a whole lot of people that that kind of put their money where their mouth is and you know that's what it takes to get quality priority projects like these done uh every single day and and we just couldn't be more proud of of everybody you know chipping in and, and helping out uh to make these projects a reality. So was the starting point of, of the partners, bringing the partners together, Did is the starting point you had to write the, a grant for Leg, uh, Minnesota Legacy Amendment uh, Outdoor Heritage Funding? Yeah, so, so the process kind of starts, you know, many years before we're going to actually acquire a property. And in, in this case, it, it would have happened uh, two springs ago. Uh, in our partnership here, our former partnership with the Prairie Chicken Society and Pheasants Forever, we go about proposing to Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council per a public RFP that they put out. We have a, a high level proposal, you know, maybe at like a 30,000 foot view where we propose a dollar request, we propose acres and we propose match all in, you know, very round high, high level numbers. And then we go and, and make our case and it's a competitive process. Uh, there is generally between 100 and 120 million dollars available every year, and the Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council may get 350 to 400 million dollars worth of requests. So they have to wade through all those requests. They hear from us. We go in and testify and make our best case on why our work's important, our work's critical, and how we're going to effectively spend their money. And so. We've been fortunate the last several years to, to receive an allocation uh, appropriation from Lassard Sam's. And then that's how we kind of start these projects uh, with that base funding. And once we learn the specifics and get a better idea of how much every individual project is gonna cost, then we start that, that process of reaching out to other partners, uh, other individuals and, and ways to, to kind of bring that uh, total purchase price and total cost of a project to fruition so it, this is a lengthy process the landowner what what the landowner has to be relatively patient or do they get a guarantee from from an organization like ours that we're going to make this happen one way or another um kind of a combination of both uh landowners definitely have to be patient there's been priority projects that have been on waiting lists for uh, a long time, many years. And so um, e even with the amount of funding we have in the state, um, there's way more priority projects than we have funding for. So um, they need to be patient, um, but we also try to be as honest and frank with them on where their tract may lie within the priority ranking and also uh, when we can realistically expect to start the process. And you know, starting the process is one thing, but getting their cash in hand and closing on the property is a whole nother. And we talked about that on the first episode. There's a lot of steps between getting an appraisal going and getting cash in the hand uh, of any landowner. So, yes, they need to be very patient and very committed. And, and fortunately, uh, in our experience, we have a lot of landowners. You can you can hear the, the passion in Brian and Rob's voice and and our landowners are much like that too. They, they have made the decision in many cases that they want to protect and leave a legacy, uh, their property that's important to them. Now, in many cases, they're century farms. And 
uh, it's not a light decision that they make to to work with with groups like ours to to do the right thing. Yeah, that that is a critically important component um, that there are landowners out there that they're they're making this decision voluntarily. Yeah, certainly, there's an economic um, component of their decision, but in this case, clearly the landowner, you know, three hundred plus acres that had never been touched by the plow. There was a conservation um, ethic clearly built into this landowner's mindset that um, they wanted to protect this land for future generations and and were patient with with all the partners coming together to make this happen. Yeah, and one other point, you know, there there are always budget realities uh, when you're when you're working on on this scale of, of dollars and the millions and. Um, Every, I think we talked about this on episode one too, but Pheasants Forever since 2009 has received over $10 million in land value donations or sales below appraised value. So the property appraises at, let's just say $2 million. Um, that's the, the top end, but maybe our budget is such that we can only offer $1.5 million. If the seller agrees to that, that's a $500,000 donation of land value. It lets us meet budget goals. It lets us stretch our dollars further. And it's also could have tax benefits for a landowner. But our landowners are very critical. And, you know, to the tune of $10 million, that buys a lot of additional land over the last 10 years. So that's a, a huge part. Uh, and just a shout out to all the landowners who have worked with Pheasants Forever and the Prairie Chicken Society in the past uh, 10 years to help us stretch that dollar. Right. Um, so Pheasants Forever... Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, DNR, and Nature Conservancy kind of begin together um, down the road with this particular property. They offer up a um, proposal to Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council, and the council through the first round says, this is something we're interested in. Then our group has to go find the rest of the funding. Take us from there, Aaron. Yeah, so we we get the funding, uh, we get a verbal agreement, and that's kind of generally when we start that process of, of reaching out to other landowners and or other partners, excuse me. Um, so in this case, we, we got a verbal agreement very quickly from the landowner and uh, started working on raising additional funds. And, and you know, just recently, uh, we, we talked, uh, we announced the Pheasant Fest, uh, which you might want to speak more about that part of it. But um, you know, worked with other groups. We talked a lot about Sharptail Grouse Society. Uh, they were they were one of the first ones in line to to pony up some funds. Uh, even though this is more in prairie chicken and, and northern pheasant country range, uh, Minnesota Sharptail Grouse Society partnered with us and and helped uh, want to be a part of this critical effort. So um, it's really just about reaching out to the folks. Uh, I would also mention the Longspur Prairie Fund uh, out of uh, West Central Minnesota. That those folks are 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 there and uh, and willing to help out where they can and and so it's just about reaching out to those folks, describing the project, describing the attributes of the project, and uh, and trying to get some commitment. So you, you mentioned a couple ways that we uh, helped augment these these funds, and I'll get to Pheasant Fest in a moment. Um, earlier in the fall of 2019, uh, there's a Give to the Max Day in November. And uh, we identified the Cupido property as our build a wildlife area project 
for the year connected to our Give to the Max Day. So if folks gave to Pheasants Forever through Give to the Max, that one day of giving in, in November of 19, thank you because you helped make this property come together. Uh, Perina, Perina Dog Food, uh, the official dog food partner of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Uh, about a, a year ago as well, Perina gave uh, Pheasants Forever $1 million contribution. Uh, and there were two things primarily that Perina was funding. One was a, a soil health and conservation initiative. The, the other was the Build a Wildlife Area campaign. So if you have a bird dog, another good reason to feed your pup. Perina Pro Plan, the official dog food of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, is that Perina puts their money where they want, to, where we want our bird dogs to roam, and that's in the public wildlife areas. And uh, Perina gave Pheasants Forever a very, very generous gift that also helped contribute to this project through the Build a Wildlife Area campaign. And then, as Aaron mentioned a few times, uh, we had a new idea associated with National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic this year in, in Minneapolis. And we took that build a wildlife area idea that's been around, uh, again, it, it another Joe Dugan name drop here, Joe Dugan's concept from 2003, where we uh, raise funds through corporate and individual giving, and we can match those funds with, with grants that we have in place through the DNR, the Environmental Trust Fund, and, and or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And we can match those dollars to those grants using the Build a Wildlife Area um, campaign. Well, the wrinkle for this year's National Pheasant Fest is we merged the build a wildlife area concept with pheasant fest this year. And uh, what came out the other end of that idea was the public lands pavilion, a brand new concept on the show floor at pheasant fest, where we had a public land stage in some of the, the, the most well-spoken advocates for public lands and, and critical habitat across the entire country and participating in the Public Lands Pavilion this year. That was sponsored by the Minnesota DNR, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and the Rough Grouse Society. And on top of that, we had a really unique component where 10 partners, 10 corporate exhibitors within the Public Lands Pavilion donated 10% of all their revenue generated during National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic 2020 in um, in Minneapolis, they donated that money to the Build a Wildlife Area campaign, which helped us cross the finish line on this project. And I want to give a shout out to those 10 companies. Number one, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, not only a sponsor of the Public Lands Pavilion, but also a contributor. Same thing with our friends at the Rough Grouse Society, a sponsor and a contributor. So it, it, I'm starting to paint the picture here, folks. You got this massive piece of property with all this wildlife habitat for all these different birds. And we got pheasants forever involved, Minnesota prairie chickens, Minnesota sharp-tailed grouse society, the backcountry hunters and anglers, rough grouse society. It doesn't matter what logo is on the, your, your, your shirt. 
we all came together around this project because of how critical and how important this habitat is. Uh, but rounding out those 10 sponsors that are part of the Public Lands Pavilion contributing 10% of the revenue included Duluth Pack, our friends up in uh, Duluth that make those fabulous uh, packs that we all take into the Boundary Waters together. Filson, company based in Seattle, Washington, contributed to this project. Hunt to Eat, making those terrific t-shirts that all of us love in, in the public lands and bird hunting world. Modern Carnivore, Mark Nordquist in the Twin Cities. It uh, does the terrific uh, podcast and, and um, learn to hunt seminars. Project Upland, based out of the Northeast. Uh, the content creators of all things bird hunting, Sage and Breaker, all those accessories for, for the hunting and shooting sports. Sam Soholt in the Public Lands Tees bus, the Public Lands bus. Sam donated a portion for every T-shirt he sold, not only at Pheasant Fest, but also at Game Fair to this project. Sightline Provisions, uh, a company that makes uh, bracelets and accessories, as well as has an outfitting business in the quail world. And uh, an organization rounding us out at number 10, near and dear to my heart, the Sportsman for the Boundary Waters, another nonprofit conservation organization focused on protecting the boundary waters. And I, uh, I am happy to serve as that organization's chairman of the board. Um, and that organization donated to um, this project. In addition, the Trust for Public Land made a contribution, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to the Minnesota Valley National Wildlife Refuge, Joseph Prosby III, and the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. So uh, I'll take a breath now. That's a, <laughs> that's a long, long list of partners, and it's not intended to be a infomercial it's intended to demonstrate how many groups came together for this particular piece of property and it is one of the proudest moments of my 17-year career at pheasants forever and quail forever because it illustrates to the entire bird hunting community in the entirety of minnesota that we're not parochial about habitat. This is a critically important 955 acres adding to a 5,450 acre complex that is now open to everybody. It doesn't matter if you're bird hunter. doesn't matter if you just want to go watch them boom. It is yours. And it all happened because of partnerships. Um, it, it this uh, where's this rank for you, Aaron? In in terms, you, you mentioned you've got you've got a year on me in terms of uh, seniority with the organization. It, this has got to be close to the top of your list too, doesn't it? This is definitely the top project in northwestern Minnesota for me. You know, something out of the core pheasant range. Um, we talk, there's a lot of pheasants up there, uh, but it's the northern edge of the range. So, you know, I have some favorite projects here close to home, like the Minnesota Veterans WMA, and this one's right there with it, uh, with the sheer amount of partners and uh, acres and how quickly this all came together uh, after this last try here. Um, so the, uh, the, 
Thank you to all these funding partners. Thanks to the sponsors I just named that kind of carried us over the finish line through National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. I just, I can't tell you how exciting it is to, you know, you put on a three-day, for all intents and purposes, a sports show, right? A three-day sports show and out the other end of a sports show a piece of public property that'll be protected as critical habitat forever comes out the other end. And it happens through attendees. It happens through membership. Every member of the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, every member of the Minnesota Sharp-Tailed Grouse Society, every member, dues-paying member of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, thank you. Thank you for making this happen. Membership matters. Doesn't matter which organization you sign up to belong to. If you love prairie chickens, sign up to the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society. If sharp tails are your bag, if rough grouse are your bag, RGS, American Woodcock Society. If you're a backcountry adventurer, backcountry hunters and anglers, be a member, get involved. It makes a difference. All right, next up for this property, we're not done yet. This property is is going to become public land, but it's got to get a facelift first, a little bit. What's going to happen, Rob, uh, between now and where this uh, gets some signage put on? What's going to happen on this property over the course of the spring and summer months, Rob? It's going to be intense. Uh, the, the first thing we're doing with Habitat Specialists with Pheasants Forever is looking at the wetland restorations. We've got about uh, 500 acres of tillable land that's in different crop rotations. Quite a bit of it's in alfalfa and, and different just haying um, uh, pro- our properties. And so we've, we've been looking at that all winter, starting kind of our designs and uh, uh one of the habitat specialists, Tyler Zimmer, has been influential in getting this thing, getting kind of the, the design stuff going. And you're, you're going to see dozers out there this summer, um, you know, plugging ditches, uh, you know, restoring some of those old wetlands that have been drained in the past and, and really giving it a kind of a wetland facelift. You know, we like to do that right off right off the bat, you know, all that while we can uh, get in there and and uh and get at those wetland uh, features and then starting this fall we're going to be doing some seeding we're breaking this it's such a big property that it's you know it's hard for us to just seed down a thousand you know 600 acres of land in one you know one couple week period so we're splitting this up into two two fall seedings this fall we're going to seed about 250 acres to native prairie and grasses and then fall of 2021 we'll seed down the other half so a lot of work there'll be some tree removal we're using cattle out on this site to do some some targeted cattle grazing, conservation huh. grazing, but it's it is the fun part, uh, Bob. I mean, let me tell you when you when you go out and walk a site and take pictures of uh, of the land before, and then I I walk it four years later after all that's done. There's nothing more rewarding for for me as a as a DNR land manager and seeing those wetland plants come back and then seeing the birds and pheasants and chickens, you know, essentially nesting and enjoying habitat that's we've, we've helped uh, restore. And just for clarification, the 300 acres of virgin prairie um, is really not anything that needs to be done to that. Or I suppose the cattle probably graze on there too, right? 
Um, it, it's going to be rested this first year for okay. sure. Um, we're, we're moving the cattle on to reducing the herd size and then moving it on to quite frankly, the alfalfa and, and, and some of these range mixes, you know, there, there was a reason this was in CRP and wasn't farmed for long-term and it's just, it's poor for farming. And, uh, the last few years, a grazer has been grazing a good chunk of that land and we're going to use those cattle essentially to help us with, um, our conversion alfalfa is a, a very tough plant to kill let's put it that way and if we can use those cattle to suppress that alfalfa for a year and then seed seed the following year that's what we're going to do you know and and cows and prairie chickens and pheasants go hand in hand so it's it's kind of a, a good partnership um, that we're hoping to keep going here in the future so after we get the um, some of this habitat work completed Aaron take us to um, take us to the, the land dedication. What, what are the next couple of steps here? Yeah, well, uh, I, I guess I would start by saying we're hoping to dedicate this, this property here late summer. Uh, we're not sure what COVID-19 will, will impact that or not, but, uh, it's, it's really kind of a two-step, 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 excuse me, process, you know, so we talked a lot about Pheasants Forever and the Prairie Chicken Society buying this property and protecting it initially from a willing seller. But then we kind of start what I call phase two, and that's the, the restoration and conveyance to our agency partner. Um, and then also celebrating the acquisition through dedication. So the second part of this is now we're working to get this in the hands officially via deed uh, to the state of Minnesota. So it'll be signed as a state wildlife management area and and we're really trying to fast track that uh, for the dedication and also um, so that it's signed this fall for hunters that uh, and folks that want to use this property. Uh, it's public land like we talked about. So I would just give a, a quick shout out to the DNR. They're they're really working hard, the realty folks and, and others behind the scenes to to dot all those I's and, and cross all those T's uh, and allow us to convey the property to the state agency in time for this dedication, hopefully. Uh, like I said, that we we hope to have late fall or late summer, and uh, certainly within time for this fall's hunting seasons. And if folks um, have a a notion of applying for a Minnesota prairie chicken permit, um, there that happens in early summer with a deadline around game fair, doesn't it? I would assume you're. Yeah, correct. I think ahead, August Bob. is the deadline. Yep. Terrific. What have I, uh, what have I missed fellas? Anything, uh, anything about this property that, um, uh, that you wanted to make sure that we talked about that I haven't brought up? Well, I, I hit every note. That's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I just, I, I can't, I mean, hopefully, um, it comes across in my voice that the entire organization from from Logan Hinners, uh, who's doing our graphic design work, to Luke Ramthun, who sold uh, the booth sponsorships around uh, the Public Lands Pavilion at Pheasant Fest, to Andy Fondrick, who's putting up um, uh, blogs on the website Every person in this organization that plays a little bit of a, a role in announcing this property or contributing to 
the role in whether it's a, a sponsor, whether it's a, you know, the graphic that accompanies a press release or Jared Wicklin who writes the press release to Aaron Sanquist, who uh, really is the quarterback for projects like this. Um, we, every single person is just so proud to be a part of projects like this. You know, we, we, we take these jobs in the nonprofit conservation world to be a part of th these sort of habitat accomplishments. 955 acres, Cupido WMA, that is going to be around forever, that we can go watch a prairie chicken on a booming ground. Maybe we pull a permit one year and, and go chase a, around our bird dog. Maybe, you know, we, we just go and, um, do some, some bird watching and songbirds, um, go for a hike. The most important thing is that it's protecting this habitat forever. And that's why we all are here. Um, and I think that that's true of, um, so many, if not every single one of the members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So, so to, to Brian Winter, the Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society and, and Rob Baden of Minnesota DNR. Thank you guys for being such terrific partners and letting us um, come together and be a part of something that will be a, a, one of the greatest, you know, moments of my career. I'm, I'm just thrilled um, on a personal level. And, and so many of us are um, excited and proud and, um, we hope to heck that this land dedication that Aaron talked about can emerge out the other end of COVID-19 because uh, I've never seen this piece of property, but I cannot wait to get there. Thank you, fellas. Thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. Hope to see you on Thank the you. Uh, amazing Love WMA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The drummer of Love WMA. We will, uh, we will endeavor to uh, one day name a WMA that. Um, uh, but uh, for, for the time being, this one, the Cupido Wildlife Management Area, 955 acres adding on to a uh, complex of 5,450 acres. That's all of yours. It's every single public uh, landowner out there. Uh, it is now open or will soon be open to the public. Um, thank you, fellows, for, for being a part of On the Wing podcast. It's been a, a very fun and gratifying conversation. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. All right, folks. Thank you for listening to uh, this really fun episode of On the Wing Podcast. Uh, I'll point you to a couple of places. Uh, uh, again, if you are a bird hunter, look up Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, Minnesota Sharp-Tailed Grouse Society, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Rough Grouse Society, Quail Forever, and, of course, Pheasants Forever. Uh, get involved. <laughs> Please become a member. You can find us all uh, on our websites. And I'll also point you to the Build a Wildlife Area program. If you would like to help contribute to more public lands, the easiest way to do it is go to pheasantsforever.org. Look under the conservation tab 
for Build a Wildlife Area. It'll tell you all about the projects that we've been able to accomplish across seven states through the Build a Wildlife Area program. In total, Pheasants Forever has contributed more than 200,000 acres of public lands through land acquisition. The, the Build a Wildlife Area program by itself has been over 13,000 acres across seven different states. And it all started in Minnesota in 2003. So if you'd like to get involved, make a contribution. Uh, there's ways where you can even put your name name of a bird dog, name of your company, um, on a monument of permanently protected public land. Go to the website, build a wildlife area. You can learn a little bit about that. And you can hit me up at Bob S at pheasantsforever.org. And I will get you connected with ways to make that happen if that is of interest to you. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. If you contributed to build a wildlife area, if you contributed to give to the max, if you're a member of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, Minnesota Prairie Chicken Society, thank you. You just helped us create 955 acres for the Cupido WMA. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm Bob St. Pierre saying, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thank you. <laughs>